The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. More than 40% of people in their 40s and 50s have both an aging parent and a child under the age of 21. Caring for people in multiple generations demands time, love, attention, and more. Welcome to Caught Between Generations with your host, Dr. Merrill Griff. Our program will bring you the information you need as a family caregiver for everyone for whom you care. With guest experts and resources to help you keep sane and organized. Now, here is Dr. Merrill Griff. Welcome to Caught Between Generations. I am Dr. Merrill, and I'm here today with Dr. Robert Humphreys. So, a few shows ago, we explored the changing roles of men as primary caregivers for their wives, their mothers, and actually sometimes their daughters. Today, we're going to explore the changing roles trends in men's life views and their emotions as they age. You know, we always seem to be focused on the changing roles of women. And and to some extent, men tend to get excluded from many of these discussions. And so today, we're really, really going to focus uh, just on the men. However, the show is for everyone. So if you're a man, I hope it helps you reframe some of the issues which you've been struggling with. And I know Dr. Humphreys will give you some possible solutions. If you're a woman, I think you'll still find some of the information helpful. And actually, I think you'll find some of it surprising. I think it'll give you a deeper understanding of some of the issues with which the men in your life, you know, really may be struggling. So I want to introduce to you Dr. Robert Humphreys. I'm so thrilled to have him (laughs) with me again. I am. So Dr. Humphreys is co-owner and one of the three founders of Vista Psychological and Counseling Center in North Camden, Ohio. He earned a doctoral degree from the University of Akron in counseling psychology. And his practice includes work with children, adolescents, families, and adults. Um, He's also a full-time professor at Walsh College, and actually he has now been promoted to associate professor and has won lots of awards. He's been an outstanding educator, he's been an outstanding alumni, and in my perception, Bob is an outstanding psychologist. Not only did I have the honor of working with him for a few years at Child and Adolescent Center in Canton, Ohio, but now actually most of my referrals go to Bob. (laughs) (laughs) which speaks to how highly I think about his work and I trust him to take very good care of people. So, Bob, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I I, I hate to follow that introduction. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot to live up to. But it's true. (laughs) But it's all true. And I do send you lots of referrals. You do. You absolutely do. Actually, Bob and I always kind of laugh about it because he's like, oh, when I hear it's you on the phone, I'm like, oh, it's another referral. (laughs) They've all worked out so well. I hope this one does too. 
<laughs> always, <Well>. always. <laughs> so, Bob, in addition to the children and the families you're seeing, mm-hmm. you tell me that you're seeing an increasing number of men in your practice. So what kinds of problems are you seeing? What are they coming in with? Well, you're, you're going to get various kinds of things for the men. I think sometimes we're dealing with issues. Um, we're dealing with some issues with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, sometimes we're dealing uh, with issues with depression, uh, sometimes uh, anxiety, um, some midlife issues, career change issues, transitioning from one position to the other, um, uh, stresses within the relationship or within the marital relationship sometimes brings people in. So there's a wide variety of things that we may be seeing people about and these men about and, and uh, um try to deal with their issues as best we can. So the first thing you said was PTSD, post-traumatic yep. stress disorder. And I think our prejudice is when we think of PTSD in this day and age, we think of it as, you know, for instance, people returning from war zones. Uh, or maybe there's been a hurricane uh, or a typhoon or whatever. I mean, what types of cases are you seeing? I um of the PTSD cases that I've seen, I actually did have a vet that I was working with, and uh, um, he had come back from a war zone, um, and so we were, were dealing. We were actually dealing with issues like that. Um, I have another fellow that I had been working with who was um, on his job had been assaulted uh, while he was on the job, and. Um, he was having a, a, a very difficult time. I think um, it magnified and personified a lot of his suspiciousness and lack of trust in other people. Mm-hmm. And, and for him, it was creating other relationship issues. Uh, it was creating um, some agoraphobic kind of response. Um, it was lending itself to sleeplessness in the evening hours because he, he was always trying to go through the house and making sure that it was secure. Now, I have an interesting story that I can tell you about, about one fellow that um, he had been on the job uh, and driving truck and was accosted coming out from a customer that he had made a delivery and had been mm. pistol whipped. And obviously, mm. uh, the victim of a crime, uh, those are very, very difficult kinds of things. And um, he said to me, and he let me know that... Um, he, he couldn't really deal very well with people coming up on him and that kind of thing. And so I let him know we were sitting out there and I could see the uh, the lawn guy out the corner of my eye and I knew he was going to pass right by the window. And he thanked me for that. And he said, you know, it's a funny thing about this PTSD stuff. And I said, what's that? He said, I never knew that it was going to be so helpful to me. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I go home at night. I close all my curtains. I turn off all the lights. But one night I heard a noise coming from my neighbor's house and I peeked out through the window and uh, sure enough, there was somebody trying to break into the house and I called the police. Well, when the police arrived, the person had obviously left, but he gave such an accurate description and he (laughs) said, it's the PTSD, he said, because I was really paying attention to what was going on, he said, and the officer got a little suspicious because he said he doesn't get those kinds of descriptions (laughs) of people. I mean, he like detailed it. And 
sure enough, uh, the officer suspected he might have been involved <laughs> in the break-in in his neighbor's house and that had something had gone wrong. The other guy had like made off with everything. And, of course, that was not the case at all. And it turned out uh, that the officer then went to look for this uh, person who was breaking in, who then circled back and came back and tried to break in again. <laughs> and then was apprehended by the officer, thank goodness. But um, uh, most of us, when we're giving a description of somebody that we see like that, the, our descriptions are not necessarily, they can be a little vague, not very accurate. And he said, yep. He said, what do you call that thing again? Oh, hypervigilance. He said, I was very hypervigilant. And I knew, <laughs> I knew exactly what this guy looked like. So, so he says to the police officer, don't worry about it. I just have PTSD. Don't worry no, about no. it. He, <laughs> he, he later explained it to the officer because the officer came back and he said, we've apprehended him. We wanted to let you know, which mm -hmm. I thought was very kind of him. Right. Uh, and and uh, and the guy said, he, the officer said, I've never heard a description that detailed and that accurate before. And he said, Listen, I was just a victim of a crime, and I have I'm suffering from some PTSD, and and my psychologist tells me that <laughs> I may know these details about things that I'm observing and I'm watching. And I thought, well, that's, great. that's great. Yeah. So so Bob, when I was back doing therapy, I mean, it was difficult. It was very difficult to get men. In, to come into therapy. You know, is that attitude of, I don't need it, that's for women, I'm not coming in, there's a stigma attached to it. it it's very interesting to me that you're seeing more men in your practice. I, I think I see two shifts in things happening. One is, is that I think, uh, finally, I, I think the evolution is now happening where the stigma is starting to be removed, number one. And number two, I think that um, as we change as men, I think we begin to recognize that we may have different emotional needs than we had before, and that we may need some assistance from somebody else, and that ability to reach out. You know, the first wave, I think, of men that I first started seeing, and, and again, I know that this may be a biased sample, was actually a lot of blue-collar workers. Well, for me, having grown up in the Youngstown area, a steel town, and I could relate to people, mm -hmm. that worked out very well for me because I was relating to these these fellows, and I, I knew a little something about the industry and what they had gone through and the changes that had taken place. So it works pretty well. But how do they get past, you know, psychologically, this the, the stigma? I mean... It doesn't, or it's or that it's a changing culture now and a changing world, and so they see coming into therapy different than they used to see it. Some of them are coming at the behest of a spouse. Some of them come in um, physician referral based, and mm. some of them come in just based on their own insight that something's not quite right, and I need to, I need to do something about it. So they're feeling okay about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 it's surprising to me too. But again, my sample may be biased. There may be a lot of people no, no, out there no. that don't want to come in. But um, it, it's a it, there. Some of that climate has started to change. That's great. I'm yeah. really um, glad to hear that. So you say that some of them come in because their wives or their significant mm -hmm. others or partners may want them to come in. So if I wanted my, I thought my husband would benefit from therapy, or I wanted him to come in, how would I approach that? What would I say besides get your rear in there or I'll throw you out of the house or something non-productive like that? Well, I don't know. That's been a, uh, that's been a productive way of getting a lot of people there. I think. <laughs> but <laughs> I may also have a biased sample that way as well. Um, <laughs> I think sometimes 
um, they get stuck. And they're not communicating well with the spouse. The spouse makes the suggestion. And, and, and sometimes it may be in the heat of anger or it may be um, in that kind of way. But typically, I think if, if there's some level of communication between the partners, they just convey to them that they think that something's wrong and that they need to check it out. Um, oftentimes, uh, and, and it, it's somewhat surprising, uh, many men are in tune with their spouses and what, the, what they think and what they think that they need. Um, and, and so we get a little bit of variance that way. Sometimes it is more related to... Um, there may be a health concern. I'm working with a a gentleman who has MS, um, Mm -hmm. and that's not a very typical male diagnosis. It's it's usually been more predominantly female, or at least the presentation has been. And um, it really changes for him what he's able to do and what he's not able to do and what he's able to bring um, uh, in the way of being able to work and then whole change in role. Uh, I'm not the provider in this family anymore. And what does that mean? So for him, it's like a huge transition. But it's also, I think, created some differences in how he and his wife have to communicate. And then we, then you add into that mix the memory issues that sometimes goes with that uh, diagnosis. And um, so sometimes he doesn't even remember having had discussions with her about some of these things. And so that, that repetition... I think it's sometimes very frustrating for her, and we talk about ways of addressing that with her in a, in a different way. The depression that you're seeing, is that developing later in life? Is this just long-standing depression, and suddenly they're coming in for treatment? And if it's later in life, is it about adult children? Is it work? D- d- depression can can come about in a couple of different ways, and I, and I think sometimes... Um, the, the trend in the literature still suggests to us that men wait too long, so their prognosis with depression is worse. Um, if we can catch somebody early enough in the process, that's much better. Uh, and, and while I'm starting to see some people present sooner, they, they still waiting, people are getting waiting until the last minute. The way that men get depressed sometimes is a little bit different than uh, what we see uh, for uh, their female counterparts. Um, Oftentimes, uh, women will connect the emotional dots, and they feel overwhelmed, and the depression comes from connecting everything emotionally. For men, uh, depression seems to come from the disconnect, where we're not connecting to anything emotionally. Uh, Men tend to be much more compartmentalizing in the way that they go about doing things. So this is work, this is family, this is my parents' stuff, this is my in-laws' stuff, this is the, the guy that I bowl with. This is, I mean, and I, it's all separated. And then in that disconnection from all of that emotion, not being able to connect any of those dots, they seem to arrive at depression. And, and so the means of depression sometimes or the way that we get depressed is different. We still have the basics. You know, you can have a reactive depression where there's been a stress and that sometimes we'll then move into uh, uh, compromising the biology. Sometimes we have more endogenous depression where it's in the family and they come from a long family history of depressives and so we pay attention to those things as well. Bob, I'm going to ask you to hold that and when we come back I want to ask you you if the symptoms of depression are different in men 
in the way it presents than it is in women. And maybe it's not, and maybe it's the same. But I also want to talk to you about some family issues like estrangement and failure to launch. You're listening to Caught Between Generations. We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where's your mom? What's she doing? You'd know if she was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know she's enjoying a full day of activities program just for her interests, like art classes, volunteering, pet care, and card club. And she's home by dinner. And what's different is that Sarah Care actually has nursing care right there with her. So you'd know. Try one free day of care at Sarah Care. Call 330-451-6108. How's your mom? She's just fine at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. At SarahCare, we provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities and home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-Care.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to drmerrill at caughtbetweengenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I am Dr. Merle, and I'm here with Dr. Robert Humphreys, and we've been having a really interesting discussion about the changes and trends with men um, as they approach therapy and they uh, approach you know, emotional issues that they're suffering with and having to deal with. So before the break, Bob, we were talking about how depression in men can present differently. Are the symptoms different in men, I mean, than they are in in women, or they look pretty much the same. I, I think sometimes they can be different in in a variety of ways. Um, sometimes uh, the presentation may involve a lack of energy. Uh, it may be more traditional kind of feelings of depression along with that lethargy. Sometimes, um, and we see this perhaps more in the young. Uh, and then the older, the elderly, um, will see the presentation of physical symptoms with no apparent physical basis that can be a presentation of depression. Um, for some men in midlife, um, depression may, uh, a symptom of depression may be an extramarital relationship, 
unfortunately. And uh, so sometimes that's actually a sign of depression rather than they got depressed after that it happened. Um, that's it's, it's actually before. Huh. Um, if we look at the predictors uh, when it comes to um, fidelity issues, um, Whitehurst talks about uh, there being two predictors. Uh, one is um, uh, isolation or disconnection from your spouse, and the other is opportunity. And sometimes uh, for men, the isolating piece is that depressive process, and that disconnect is that depressive process. And if the opportunity happens to present itself at that point, a person could be more vulnerable. Um, and so in a, in a perfect world, if, if I'm never feeling disconnected from my spouse, then there's never, it doesn't matter how many opportunities I have, it probably doesn't happen. On the other side, if I ever never have an opportunity, it doesn't matter how often I'm disconnected <laughs> from my spouse, nothing is probably going to happen. But, but if those two things happen in tandem, um, even the person who is really uh, strongly anchored to their, to their spouse uh, may be vulnerable at that point. And depression seems to be sometimes the great uh, separator and disconnecting us uh, from our spouses. Um, and we could become vulnerable at that point. You know, it's interesting to me because I'm suddenly thinking through a few marriages that I know where men lost their jobs and then suddenly um, there was opportunity there. You know, a woman that they had been working with is suddenly um, calling them and then suddenly, you know, they find themselves ensconced in an affair that they really weren't looking for, but as suddenly there and it's interesting so you say it and it makes sense they've lost their job they're now feeling bad about themselves they're feeling depressed mm-hmm. and suddenly that opportunity presents itself what about bob i'm sorry I'm, go ahead i'm sorry i was, I was just going to say you know we have to remember particularly with jobs sometimes men define themselves by what they do and so whether we're talking about a job loss because of a downturn in the economy there's a loss of identity so if you think about that, it's not just losing a job, it's a loss of who we are. When we see it in retirement, oftentimes, if a person doesn't really do a good deal of retirement planning, like, well, this is what I'm going to plan to do when I retire, and have a, a good plan and a course of action of things that I'm going to do, there's a loss of identity when we are no longer doing our job. And so when you think about the stress of that, it's much more tremendous. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to cut off no, the no, question. No, no, I was no, just no. like, I was, thinking, I was thinking to myself, that, that may be something that your listeners would be interested in hearing about. No, no, actually, I think it's a good point. And I'll tell you what it made me think about. It made me think about this kind of proverbial conversation between men and women, mothers and fathers over, especially adult children that I hear a lot. And so something has happened with the adult child. There's an estrangement or the adult child is a disappointment for whatever reason. And and fathers often are heard to be saying, ah, that's that's it. I'm done with him. You know, whatever, you know, it happened, it happened. You know, I'm, I'm not dealing with it. He's an adult. Just let him handle it himself. Where women get devastated by it. And, and I often hear men saying to women, you know, just forget about it. Why are you so devastated by it? And it dawned on me as you said that is because I think even as women, even when we're professional women, and we're working and we have careers, that we still see our families as our primary job and our identity, right? And and that's very much a part of that. But also, I think it talks about the differences in how we we handle stress. Men, 
<clears throat> traditionally we've characterized the stress reaction as fight, flight, or freeze. Okay, and and we look at it from that kind of. So when we're stressed about something, we're going to run, we're going to fight, or we're going to be like a deer in the headlights. We're going to just be caught for a moment. Um, there's a new stress model that has come out of the feminist literature, interestingly enough, that talk about uh, this attend and befriend model. What is that? Well, it, it's it's when we're stressed, we want to we want to tend or be attended to by somebody, and we want to befriend the person who's experiencing the stress, or we want to be befriended by somebody when we're experiencing stress. And so um, some people would say it goes back to the hunter and the gatherer because fight, flight seemed to work for the men and women were the gatherers, and, they, the, and then they had to tend and befriend each other when they were, when there were stressful kinds of situations. I would, I would dare say, though, that it's probably going to go this way in terms of the trend. Um, I think we've oftentimes conceptualized stress from that fight-flight model, and um, we've put it to both men and women. And I think it's probably true of both. Uh, if we were look to looking at it from an autonomic uh, kind of uh, nervous system viewpoint, um, if you and I heard the same loud noise, my heart would race faster and with a greater intensity than yours would, although we would both experience being startled by the loud noise. Um, so we tend to have a little bit more autonomic reactivity. But I also think that we, we want to tend and befriend. Um, I think we do it differently along gender lines, but I think both models are going to be applied to both genders eventually, and it's going to be a, a, a model that will include both as we look at how we stress. Some people resolve stress by helping somebody else, and it feels good to help someone else and to make a little bit of a sacrifice. And so that tend and befriend, there's an opportunity for some interchange in there that, uh, that may actually be of benefit to us. So give me, can you give me a specific example of that? That's kind of interesting. And I'm, I'm trying to take it and translate it into a specific example. So, um, I, so for instance, we see families who are, obviously a lot of families, all of whom are caregivers, actually, um, and they're caring for someone. They're very stressed. They're very, very overwhelmed. They tend to get isolated um, at times because of the caregiving that they're doing. And then suddenly what happens is, I'm thinking back, is that um, suddenly we're hearing from the you know administrator, not the administrator, but the administrative assistant who sits at the front desk of our centers, oh, my gosh, you know, this family member was here for 45 minutes. You know, I, I really couldn't break the conversation. Um, and so now we're in the midst of building what we call caregiver cafes in our centers mm -hmm. so that they have a place to go. Is that because they're under stress and, and they're attempting? I would say I saw it as reaching out for support, but, but maybe the reframe is they're trying to befriend or tend to there, someone. There, there may be a part of that. I mean, there's actually a hormonal basis that we see in the stress hormones. Uh, there's a stress hormone uh, called oxytocin that is released. And oxytocin promotes affiliation. It says we need to connect to somebody else. And so many of us, when we get stressed, we isolate, we pull away, we get... And actually, that probably, in the, in the bigger picture, is bad for us. Instead... Mm -hmm we need to be connecting to others. And it's in making that connection. Think about this for a moment. 
someone will talk to you about having been in the caretaker role and the things that have gone on and how stressful it was, but then they will also give you the story about the one person and this act of kindness that they experienced from one particular person during the midst of all of that. Um, and, and it stays with them. I, I remember once uh, having a friend uh, who uh, lost a spouse and we had all gone to college together. And I remember probably a year later we had all gotten together uh, to go out to dinner. And uh, he said, I'll never forget what you said to me the night of my wife's calling hours. And I'm thinking, oh, good Lord, what, you know, I don't know all the etiquette. What, I, what could I possibly said wrong? And he said to me, he said, you told me that when I'm ready, that I'd be around to listen. And he, and he held on to that. And for him, that was a very important thing. And I think we all could go back to a stressful time. And something that somebody says to us or something that somebody that reaches out to us and does strikes us and kind of gets us through that rough moment. Now, it's really tough in a family situation where you have a family where one person may be the primary caregiver and the rest of the family is stressed out. It's hard to give that to each other. On the other hand, we do need to have that kind of tend and befriend, that that sense of somebody doing something for us. Uh, there's benefits in that, I think. It's a very, you know, often we have people say, well, I, you know, I didn't call them or I didn't say anything to them because I didn't know what to say. You know, I was uncomfortable. And I love that. It's like when you're ready, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there to listen. I love that. Mm-hmm. I just love that. So, Bob, we only have a minute till the next break. So I'm going to ask you to just kind of, Think through what you think are, you know, I'm talking about adult children as the top problem that that men may be dealing with that are different than what they used to deal with before. We're kind of used to the loss of job, you know, Mm -hmm. we're kind of used to the PTSD on the basis of being either a victim of crime or coming back from a war zone. Um, But I think historically women anyway see men as really not so concerned about what's happening with adult children and if families are estranged or if kids are disappointing or, you know, they need more financial assistance than we thought they were going to need <laughs> as adults or they've moved back in and they won't move back out again or whatever it is, we see it is really not bothering them. So as soon as we come back, I'm going to ask you, what do we do about that? Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where's your dad? What's he doing? You'd know if he was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know he's enjoying a full day of cooking, computers, yoga, golfing, and he's home by dinner. You'd know Sarah Care LPN and RN Nursing Care is with him to ensure he gets the right medications at the right dosages. You'd know. How's your dad? He's just fine at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at Sarah Care. At Sarah Care, we provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. 
While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H care.com. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I'm Dr. Merrill, and I'm here with Dr. Robert Humphreys. We're having a great conversation uh, about men, and I'm learning a lot, and I, I hope you are too. Bob is a licensed psychologist who works with children, adolescents, families, and adults, but today we're talking about men. So before the break, I was saying, Bob, you know, usually the things we think about men struggling with are work-related issues, retirement, sometimes financial issues, not planning for retirement, so on and so on. And and I think the prejudice is, as I said before, that men don't care about, you know, I don't mean to make that lightly, but basically it's an attitude of it is what it is with adult children. They're estranged, they're not talking to me, or they move back in and they're not moving out, or they need too much financial assistance. It just doesn't seem to impact them um, so much. Is that what you're seeing? I would have to say that the display rules are, I don't show it. But inside, I think what happens to us emotionally as men is, is that the older that we get, we become more sentimental. Hmm. And um, it's, it's a weird kind of circumstance. Those emotions have always been there. You know, I sometimes will ask my college students, you know, who's more emotional, men or women? And uh, when we look at it from a physiological standpoint, we had talked about this before the break, that autonomic arousal, men would be considered to be more emotional than their female counterparts. On the other hand, if we look at the display rules, the cultural display rules about when they're able to show feelings, women are a lot more free to show their emotions than men are, and based on the cultural display rules. And then if you looked at it from like the, the number of emotions that we experience, and we looked at it in terms of what we experience, we experience very much the same things as both men and women. And so if we are um, estranged from an adult child, for example, and that might be hurt, that we might perceive that as to be hurtful. And we may not show it. We may not say it. We may, uh, we may sit in our chair and sulk when we don't get that call or they get off the phone with their mother and they haven't asked to talk to us. I mean, 
Uh, I'm sorry. Some of us are powders. Um. <laughs> Actually, I see that. I hadn't, even, I hadn't even thought. You know, sometimes it's, it's such a prejudice we have. And sometimes we think that the men are thinking, oh, thank goodness they didn't want to talk to me. All right, because I'm right in the middle of watching the game. You know? <laughs> it's like, you know, what do you mean they didn't want to talk to me? <laughs> But we won't say that. You know, that's an inside voice thing. I, I think sometimes uh, we, we do become more sentimental, we, and, and there's a shift. You know, what used to be important um, to us, perhaps in the business world or in the things that we did to um, uh, keep the family going, um, suddenly is not as important. And so we want to have those connections and we want to feel. I mean, I, I, I'm aware of one circumstance. Every time the daughter left to go back to college, uh, the father was seen by the neighbor standing in the driveway sobbing about his daughter going, okay, she called every day, okay? <laughs> but yet for him, there was this sense of loss that went with that. And he would probably have been the last person you would have expected to have that degree of emotionality. I think we're all affected by things uh, fairly deeply. And again, we may have different levels of comfort in terms of whether or not we show that and whether or not we share that. Sometimes uh, our, our spouses and um, will be privy to some of that. And they are, uh, we allow them in and we share those things with them. And, and sometimes it takes uh, our spouses back because they're not expecting that. You know, this is the person who's always been dismissive or you worry too much. What are you worried so much for? You know, you wait, wait and see. We have to take a wait and see attitude. And we handle those things, sometimes those crises a little differently. And suddenly we're experiencing something like a son or a daughter who is not making any phone calls or who we haven't heard from or who we are feeling estranged from. And uh, when we sit down and we're t we, we share that with our spouse, they're taken back because it's not what they would have expected. It's not that same dismissive um, guy way of dealing with things that they've traditionally seen from us. Now, it dawns on me, Bob, as you're saying that, that that also impacts children, especially adult children, because they perceive it the same way. You know, I do whatever I do, and my father seems to be dismissive. He just, you know, he just doesn't seem to care very much about this, or it doesn't impact him. My mother's sobbing, and my father's just like, yeah, whatever, you know. The, the, the thing that is, I think, the one feeling that we seem to, in, in North American men, that we seem to be more free to show is anger. And so... Uh, the, the son that says, all I ever hear are the negative things from my father, um, it, which is kind of an interesting thing, is probably not untrue. They'll hear about the disappointment, they'll hear about the anger, but they won't hear, you know, I care about you, um, I want what's best for you, I'm worried about, because the feeling that probably came before the anger was the worry. Um, I, I went to a workshop at one time, uh, uh, for anger, um, as somebody that was going to be doing anger treatment with other people, not not because I had an anger issue. Um, and, oh, I thought they were uh, teaching you to become angry. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> uh, but what they were, what they did, this this fellow was a professional storyteller by trade, and he said that men boiled down to three basic emotions: anger, bored, and and horny. And so. <laughs> 
I didn't know that horny was an emotion, but <laughs> they didn't teach me that, that in graduate that, school. That, well, that's what he said. And, and, and all I remember, and it's, this is why it stuck with me, is I felt the uh, sharp elbow of my now partner, uh, <laughs> one of my partners at Vista, stuck in my ribs. She thought that was funny, and I was, I was completely offended. Um, <laughs> Like it is right now. Like right now. I'm laughing, you're offended. (laughs) But his point in this storytelling uh, was that sometimes things like fear, sometimes things like um, worry will come through as anger because it gets translated. And so oftentimes in trying to help equip men in dealing with feelings better, we talk about the feeling that came before the anger. That becomes a piece of the anger management. You know, what came before you got angry? Well, I might have been jealous. I might have been worried. I might have been threatened. I might have been frightened. That's one that we have trouble saying out loud. There's nothing that's supposed to frighten us. We're supposed to be bigger and stronger and handle whatever comes along. Um, and, And going back to the story that we were talking in the first segment, you know, uh, when I hear uh, the story about the man that was experiencing the PTSD after having been pistol whipped um, and the fear for his own life that he talked about, it's not that we don't have those feelings. It's just that we don't talk about them very often or have reason to talk about them. Um, and and he was perfectly, I think he was perfectly okay in just sharing that story with me and talking to me about how afra- he was afraid he was going to die. Hmm. And and how it impacted him. Bob, do you think the coping mechanisms that men use are different than the coping mechanisms that women use? I think oftentimes uh, we can talk about coping st- uh, strategies uh, from the standpoint of we compart- we do tend to compartmentalize, and so we put things in a separate basket because we don't want to get overwhelmed. We have to, you know, we have a certain. Uh, facade that we have to put out to people. We can't be overcome by these emotions. Uh, We've got to put the face on, so to speak. And, um, you know, there was a developmental study not that long ago that that traced little boys. Mm -hmm. And after a certain age, they have a face that is this nondescript, non-emotional face that seems to take place. And it happened at about the same point as they were looking at all of these boys. And so before that, they were much more open to tearfulness and, 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 and smiling. And, but you got to that point and it was like, I'm stoic now and I don't have any feelings anymore. And that was the display rule that they were given. And it's really kind of a fascinating process when you start looking at those faces and seeing those kinds of things. And, and sometimes I hear that from parents. You know, they, they talk about their, uh, sometimes 11 or 12-year-olds can be very emotional still. And they are not expecting that. You know, they're in double digits now. They're almost, they're on the brink of the teenage years. Why? I'm not expecting to see this. And I, I'm thinking to myself, you know, when I was uh, helping to coach middle school football, I remember the coach yelled at one of the kids who was out of position. The next thing I see is these tears. And this this was a rough and tumble kid. These tears just coming down the kid's face. He did exactly what the coach told him to do. But, you know, and I think to myself, in my mind, football players don't cry, you know. And and yet, and yet, here we were in the midst of this. And so I think there's there's a great deal of emotionality that's still left. But at a certain point comes along and we see it probably as you on the brink of 13, 
moving toward 14, we see that face start to, to happen. You know, I think, Bob, it's it's been interesting to hear this because I think as women, you know, we don't always understand. You know, we accept what goes on with men. We we. We accept the facade is what's really going on. And I don't think we always think through, you know, what's really going on underneath of that. And so I think we may tend to miss it um, in significant people in our lives because we're not looking underneath. And that's all the more reason for us to talk to each other and to try to communicate better. You know, the people that are closest to us, the people that are the significant people in our lives, we need to take the risk to share more because it makes us more relatable, it helps people to connect better to us, and we do really need, there is power in that connection. I, I, don't, uh, I don't think we would have that naturally released oxytocin that promotes affiliation in the stress reaction if we didn't need each other to some extent. I mean, that makes sense. You know, we need to connect. And, you know, we may be socialized to connect in different kinds of ways, but we still need connection. Right, which means, though, the other person needs to be listening. And I'm a big fan of disclaimers and or rules where you say, I'm now going to be talking to you about something that's very important. <laughs> Pay attention. Here we go. It's your opportunity. All right. No TV. Eyes split on me. You know, heads up. This is important. <laughs> an advanced organizer. That's what you're giving us, is an advanced organizer. <laughs> That's why I figured I'd give you a chance. All right. Here you go. All right. We're going to be right back. When we come back, I'm finally going to get to, Bob taught me this new term I had never heard before, so I want him to explain it to you, which is friendship sickness. We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. How's your husband now that he can't quite take care of himself? Or how's your wife now that getting around isn't as easy as it used to be? You'd know if your spouse was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities, a full day of customized activities and their home by dinner and nursing care that's right there with them. How's your spouse? Just fine at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Try it for free. Call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at Sarah Care. At Sarah Care, we provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H care.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You 
are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. We've been talking to Dr. Robert Humphreys, and I just said to Bob uh, off air that um, I think this has been very, very helpful even to me because I, I think as women we tend to, you know, just, you know, underestimate what men are really feeling. Um, and if, if we've learned nothing, it's for men to communicate a little more and for women not to take at face value what they're hearing, but maybe to push a little more um, to say what's really going on. Not that you're a therapist, but just in a meaningful, intimate relationship way. So, okay, Bob, friendship sickness. What is it? What is it? You know, isn't that a great construct? I love it. I love it. I never heard it before. I was so happy. The the I believe it was the Journal of Counseling and Development that talked about this notion of something that was occurring in college students they were seeing for the first time. And it was this concept, and it wasn't homesickness, it was called friendship sickness. Now, it's kind of ironic in a world where we'd have all of these ways to stay connected, that people felt disconnected from their friends when they went away to school. And, and so it kept them, and it was a construct that they believed was keeping them from connecting and getting to stay on campus. When they talk about retention and campus retention mm-hmm. and keeping students there for a four-year stint, uh, this idea of friendship sickness really kind of came into play because the students that engaged and, and made new college friends and, and were able to join the community, so to speak, did much better than the ones that didn't. And when they looked to see what could be the problem, it was this idea of friendship sickness. And these kids, uh, young adults, missed their friends. And if you think about it in some ways, uh, there's a lot of ways that we become isolated from each other with all this communication stuff and this information stuff. Um, you have the very isolating video games. Uh, you have, you have, uh, you know, you may have Skype and and text messages and all of those kind of things, but you're really still not connecting at the same kind of level as you are when you're meeting somebody in person and seeing them in person. And rather than seeing college as an opportunity, those people that were suffering from friendship sickness were actually disengaged from the very opportunities that the university or the colleges were providing to them to, to engage. You know, I wonder, Bob, if what happens is they play a specific role among their friends. You know, so we think about the, you know, the football quarterback who goes on to play, you know, college ball. He may not obviously walk on as a star, but he has a position. He's, he's on that team. And there are other personal theory, but there are other, in effect, what we used to call big man on campus type people on a smaller scale though that are not so easily seen but that's what they are within their group they're the leader in that group and everyone looks to them and it just dawned on me as I was talking to you that maybe what happens is they go to college and now they have to start all over again and and that would be overwhelming I think that would be difficult you know I, I think sometimes and again um it depends on the level of development and the kind of progress that they've made. Um, some people are much more ready emotionally for college than others. And I wonder if the friendship sickness, and, and my own conjecture is, is that the friendship sickness may be an extension of 
not having the kind of emotional development. I still need those high school friends. I need to see those people that I go to every class with every day. I still need to connect to them in the ways that I traditionally connected to them. And I'm not yet ready to launch into new opportunities Mm -hmm. and connect in that way. I mean, some people, if you talk to them and you hear their stories, they'll talk about the lifelong friends that they made while they were in college. But there are those. There are other people that will not have that same kind of experience because they may not have been ready or they didn't go to school and they kind of stayed in the same place or they stayed in the same community and they took on the same role because it was comfortable and because it, it seemed to suit them. And this, this construct may actually tie into some of those kinds of things. So while we're talking about young people, I mean, are you seeing the same type of trend? Are you seeing more young men than you used to see before? In your practice? Uh, There's a little bit of variance there with respect to that. Uh, More often, the the younger men that I see or the college-age men that I see may be looking for some kind of um, uh, assessment for college where they may be able to get some accommodations with the college classes. And so, um, and again, part of that may be just a biased sample because it's one of the services that that we, uh, we offer. And it's become, we have whole offices of accessibility now. So I'm getting a slew of people coming in from colleges who want to be able to, you know, uh, do I have an attention problem? What's wrong that I'm not able to know these things? What's And again, sometimes there's nothing wrong, which is a wonderful thing, although they seem to be sadly disappointed. <laughs> um, well, now I do have to take that exam all time. <laughs> Shucks, Dr. Humphreys. <laughs> you're, not, you're not helping me. You're I thought helping. you were a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes there are subtle problems. Um, I had a gal once that came in and um, had such a severe reading disability. I wasn't sure how she had gotten as far in college mm. that she had. And um, it was an interesting kind of thing. Um, they had her like in four, somewhere in fourth grade, the school district that she was in had had talked about maybe identifying her as having a problem. And she had all these workarounds. She's a wonderful, turned into a wonderful professional. Um, but she had all these workarounds for this lack of reading. And, but this reading ability was starting to impact her when she got to about the junior year of college in a very much more severe way. The interesting thing is, is that when she went on to graduate school, um, the graduate school didn't want to provide the accommodations uh, that mm. were very much needed. And uh, I remember wrangling with that issue. It was very tough. Interesting. Bob, this has been a great conversation. We only have uh, about two minutes left. Any last thoughts that um, you want to share with us? Well, if- as always, I enjoy sitting down and talking with you, Meryl. And, and you. the topics that we prepare and the things that we uh, we come together to talk about always are a lot of fun. Um, again, I, I would say to people... Uh, make sure that you reach out to those around you and, and do something kind for somebody. Pay it forward, as it were. Those acts of kindness really offer us some resilience to the stresses that we face every day. And uh, we can't do that too much. That's great. Dr. Humphreys, give us your contact information. Uh, yes, I am at uh, 1201 South Main Street there in North Canton. Uh, the practice's name, again, is Vista Psychological and Counseling Center. We can be reached at 330 330- Two four four eight seven eight two, and you can also look out at us on the web www.vistapcc.com. And that is North Canton, Ohio. North Canton, Ohio. Right. So our listeners in England and Australia, 
And uh, China. Can see us on the web. <laughs> <laughs> or like us on Facebook. Um, <laughs> are you on Facebook? We are on Facebook. We are on Facebook, yeah. That's great. All right. So we should like you on Facebook. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So I am, am going to say in closing, I'm going to do a little take off on what Dr. Humphrey said. And that is, he's right, that it is very, very good. Um, acts of kindness do a lot for you. But as I always tell you, you know, you're a caregiver. You're a lot under a lot of stress. You're very overwhelmed. One of your acts of kindness has to be for yourself. All right. So you've got to do just one thing. I always ask you to do just one thing for yourself. And I don't care if you walk outside and take a deep breath for five minutes and enjoy the sunshine or you eat a cookie, my personal favorite, or whatever it is that you do. But you need to take just a moment, just five minutes just for yourself. All right. You're very, very important. You're very important to the people around you. And you really, really have to take good care of yourself. This is Dr. Merrill. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for tuning in to Caught Between Generations with Dr. Mel Griff. Our program is live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We hope to see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.